You are listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, DC, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ben Stewart. Well, I was disturbed the other day walking into my daughter's closet. Uh, my two girls are in elementary school. I went into their room and I opened the closet door and the entire wall of their closet had been changed. There were photos stuck to the wall. Some of them were drawings of a shadowy figure or multiple figures. Others were pictures that had money taped to them. Others were photos or pictures they had drawn of, of different cities or countries. And then all these different pictures were tied together with these little red strings of yarn they had taped between each picture, connecting money to a certain clientele, connecting a city to this person, a set of jewels to that shadowy crowd. And I suddenly looked at this scene that looks a lot like what you've seen on those kind of cork boards and detective movies and things like that, but you don't maybe normally see in a nine-year-old's room. And so I opened that door and was like, what on earth? is this. A, either my nine-year-old's been recruited by an agency here in town, unbeknownst to her mother and I, or B, this corona quarantine is starting to get to her. She's fraying at the edges a bit. Or another possibility is my daughter's doing what is very natural for children and for human beings to do. She was drawing connections between things she's experienced, right? Okay, this money fuels this organization and this organization accomplishes these goals. And she was playing a little game where she was seeing the connections between things that fuel some things or produce other things. And it's a very natural human impulse to see connections and understand how they make all things work. Now, why am I bringing that up? Because we're starting a new series today on faith, hope, and love. And we're calling the series The Space Between. And we're starting the series on faith, hope, and love because I think even if you haven't really read the scriptures that much, you know, faith, hope, and love, they show up in the scriptures like hundreds of times. These are the foundation stones of all that we believe and hold dear. But there's about a dozen or so times in the New Testament where these things show up together. It's very common, a very common way of teaching in the New Testament that these are the pillars that we build our lives on. But about a dozen or so passages show how they connect. This one fuels that one. This one produces the other. That these are meant to work together in a synergistic way to do something powerful in our lives. And I think all of us know these ideas are powerful. Faith, hope, and love. Many of you, if you don't read the Bible, you even know these verses. Now, faith, hope, and love remain. But the greatest of these is love. Like, you know that verse. But if we're honest, we don't really know what that means. I think for many of us, like you would put it on a plaque in your house, faith, hope, and love. But I asked you, what does that mean? Like, how does it impact your life? You'd go, it means, you know, be like cool to each other and whatnot. Like, I, I don't know. Like, we don't really know, right? And yet the ancients, they saw this as the way to understand the way they related to God and everything else. 
uh, Paul, when he wrote to the Thessalonians, he thanks God for them. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 2, he says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. He said these three things are productive things in your life. The work of faith, the labor of love, the steadfastness of hope, that these realities in your life are meant to produce good work, produce good things. And then he says to him later in 1 Thessalonians 5.8, since we belong to the day, let's be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. There they are again, faith, hope, and love, now not producing good things in his life, but protecting him like armor. He says these realities of faith, hope, and love, they're meant to be active in you, to produce good things in your life. And they're meant to be protective of you, to keep some evil things out of your way of thinking, out of your way of living, out of your way of feeling. That these realities, when they work together, are meant to be productive and protective. They're meant to be a triad that's like a stool you can build your life on. You get a stool with one leg, not real stable. Two legs, still not stable. Three legs, that'll support weight. That'll support a life. And when these realities work together, there's a strength here. And so really what I want to do in this series is, is go back to these basics because they're stabilizing basics. And if I can just be real, I think all of us need some stability in these days. And we need to return to some basics about who we are and how we live. And so that's why we're here. And we're just going to take some of the space between how do these relate? And what I want to do today is really just answer the question that the text brings up. Again, we love this verse sentimentally. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. But to me, that raises the question, why is love the greatest? Why? Why is it better than the other two? And you go, well, it said earlier, love never fails. And you're like, well, hope's not going to fail that we're going to receive what we hope for. In the Bible, faith doesn't fail because Jesus is a worthy object of our trust. So faith and hope are going to accomplish their intended end. So that's not what makes love different. But there's something about love that Paul says is greater even than faith and hope. So I want to look at why is love the greatest, and then let's apply it to how we live in the midst of these crazy days. So that's what we want to do. Why is love the greatest? Why is it greater than faith and hope? Let me give you four reasons. There are more. Certainly not less, but let me give you a couple. The first I would give you is because love precedes faith and hope. Love precedes faith and hope. It existed before. You see it in 1 John 4, 7. He says, beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. He's encouraging us to love one another, but then he backs up as to why, and he says something about God's essential nature. God is love. That love existed in eternity past as an essential part of his nature. He didn't need faith, didn't need hope, but love existed. Why? Because in Christianity, unlike any other faith, we believe that though God is one, he's also three. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so they share love. Love requires the other. Love is a concern, a care, an enjoyment, a delight in the other. So you can't love without an other. And so a singular monad God cannot essentially be love. But if you have a trinity, 
where mutually they love each other, care for one another, delight in each other. You have love existing in eternity past. God in himself is a party. And God is love, and that love existed in eternity past and was so powerful and intense that this love was meant to be shared, and so it prompted creation. You see, in Ephesians 1, Paul's saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He said, before the foundations of the world were set down, God had an idea. I want to bring other people around that'll be set apart to me, that they can be holy to me and blameless in love, that in love they'll be my kids, that my love radiates out, that they'll see me and enjoy me and know what it is to be fully known and enjoyed by me. When something's awesome, you want to share it. It's intrinsic in awesomeness. Oh, this video is funny. Share. Hey, come look at this. Hey, you need to listen to that. When we think something's amazing, we want to share it. And God's looking at himself and saying, we are amazing. Let's share this. And so God extends out in love the way a family does. When my wife and I loved each other so deeply and that love creates a human life where like love brings you into a loving orbit that exists, even though this is common in the world, babies are born every day, this is profound that love creates someone to share in that love. Love precedes faith and hope. And, and so then it created it. When God made humanity at the beginning, in Genesis, this beautiful poetry, he creates that tree of immortality, right? First Timothy says God alone possesses immortality. Adam and Eve, they weren't immortal. But God created a tree of immortality. Genesis 3 says that if you eat of it, you live forever. Ma mankind, humanity, was always meant to live by faith. I come with faith empty hands to God's means of life, the tree. And when I take from it, it's with hope, a confident expectation that I get to continue to live in this being known and fully knowing and enjoying. We were meant to come in faith and hope to the love that made it all. But we put our faith in something else. We put our hope in something else. Our first parents did, and we've all done that. We have all looked to a thing, some notoriety, some money. If I just get that position, if I just get this person's attention, if I just get, we looked at something to be our source. Every one of us have put our faith and hope in things that are unworthy of it. And it breaks underneath us like a wobbly stool. We've watched the world break. But God in his mercy came running. Love kept moving. And love doesn't just precede faith and love. Love produces faith and hope. Love doesn't just precede faith and hope. It produces it. That love sent the only begotten son. Right? That's what John 3.16 says. Most of us know that verse too if you don't go to church. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. God saw us go astray and love sent the son of God to us, that in believing in him, we would have life. First John 4 says, in this, the love of God was manifest, that God sent his son, that we might live through him. The love of God is manifest in the space-time arrival of Jesus Christ. It's a declaration of love. I want to win you back. 
And so Christ came, and not only did he come, it says, and this is love, not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Love doesn't excuse sin or pretend it doesn't exist. Love pays for it. And Jesus saw what we had did, and he was honest with us about our brokenness. Love can be real. And yet he didn't dismiss and cast us off. He absorbed the cost of our rebellion because that's what love does. Right? And not only did he do that, listen to this, when love came to rescue us, what happened? Then we put our faith in Jesus and that gives us hope for an eternity with him. But love didn't just send Jesus. Where did this faith and hope come from that we put inside of him? Look at Romans 5. Romans 5 once says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, justified means be made right, we're okay, declared not guilty in court, since we've been justified by faith, empty hand, confidence in Jesus and his finished work on the cross, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. When we put our faith in Jesus as the substitute for us, we now have peace with God, not just inner peace, but peace among ourselves. We've been reconciled, we've become friends. And through Jesus, we've obtained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand. Now we stand in a realm called grace. We're in a state of perpetual kindness of God, even though you're still constitutionally a mess. Why? Because Jesus Christ's love is that profound, that we stand in it. Our faith gives us access to that grace. And he says, and we rejoice in hope and the glory of God. When I put my faith in him, I get hope. I'm gonna see glory again. The most broken, sad things about me and about the culture will disappear and the most beautiful things will endure. And suffering won't upend it. He says, not only that, we rejoice in our suffering, knowing suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. He says, suffering doesn't diminish our hope. Actually, suffering seems to clarify our hope. When we put our hope and trust in a lot of vain, silly things, the more we suffer, the more we realize, you know what? How many followers really matter? Did it ever make me happy? How much money really gave me peace? Did I ever feel settled? And when we suffer, usually it's a good purifier of what we put our hope in. And so suffering can produce more hope. And then he says, and hope does not put us to shame. You don't need to feel dumb for hoping that God is gonna rescue us in Jesus. Why? On what basis will hope not put us to shame? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he's given us. He's talking about the subjective experience of knowing God loves me. So, so get, get this. Love precedes faith and hope, and it produces it. God in his love sends the object of our faith, Jesus Christ. He sends the Son. Then the very Spirit of God comes and sheds abroad that love in our heart. And when he does that, we see Jesus and trust him. We see God's plan and we hope in it. So love sends the object of our faith, and love sends the faith to put it into that object. Love is that profound that it comes to the space-time moment when Jesus arrived on that cross and love comes to you in that moment you were broken and crying in your bedroom and God let you know it really is that bad, but my grace really can extend that far. You are not too far gone. The love of God extends even to you and even to me. It's that profound. 
1 Thessalonians, remember I mentioned that he was thanking God for their faith and their hope and their love. And he says, because we know brothers loved by God, he chose you. It was the love of God that produces in us faith and hope. And then that faith and hope expresses itself in love. That's what Paul told the Galatians in Galatians 5. He says, how do you know you have faith in God? You don't suddenly start doing a bunch of religious rules. He said, all that matters is faith working itself out through love. When God in his love puts faith in my heart and hope in my heart, that faith and that hope begin to produce love. That hope springs forth into faith and into love is what Paul told the Colossians, right? That my trust in him becomes love for others. That's the amazing thing about it. It begins to produce something in me, right? Um, My daughter, Sparrow, if you came to my house right now, would without hesitation generously give you some of her Halloween candy. Unsolicited. You may not like candy. She'll walk up and hand you, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight pieces right off the top. Why is she so generous? Where does that come from? Well, um, that child has more Halloween candy than I've ever seen any child collect in my entire human life. By like a factor of five. I'm still not quite sure how it happened. Because they didn't trick or treat. I think just the neighbors set, bought candy and was like, oh, well, here you go, kid. And she has exponentially more candy, not just than her siblings, but then that her father ever collected in my entire life of trick or treating. And so she has an abundance and that abundance allows her to be generous. And it's not just an abundance now. She goes to bed every night with a certainty that candy will be there tomorrow. There's no anxiety in her little heart about scarcity. If I give you some, I won't have enough tomorrow. Tomorrow I'll be candyless. What will I chew? She knows I have a confident expectation, a hope that candy's going to be there in the future. And so what happens? It allows me to be generous to you right now in the present. And you see, Paul told the Colossians, your faith, And your love spring from your hope. You're so confident God has a good future for you. You can be generous now. All that matters is faith working itself out through love. I'm so confident God's taking care of me now. I'm not just cared for. I don't out of fear, got to react with anxiety and scarcity and try to get what's mine. I know God loves me and his love is inexhaustible. So I have love for you. I have generosity for you. I have care for you. His love precedes and his love produces, and his love surpasses faith and hope. It goes beyond the two. We're supposed to put faith in things worthy of trust. We're supposed to put our hope in things worthy to be counted on, right? You put your faith in something solid. You put your hope in something reliable. But you put your love in things that could not be reliable not be faithful. Jesus said in Matthew 5, you've heard it say, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father in heaven for he makes his son to rise on the evil and the good and his reign to fall on the just and the unjust. You put your faith in a faithful object, your hope in an object worthy of hope, but your love is meant to overflow the expected human banks. Because God's love came to us while we were enemies. His love in us is supposed to be so profuse, it 
spills over the bounds of just friendship and moves out even to enemies. So if you don't love Donald Trump, you're wrong. If you don't pray for and love Nancy Pelosi, you're wrong. Now, I know I've just upset a lot of people. But I'm quoting Jesus. So if you're mad, you're not mad at me. Let me read it again. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So if you perceive people in these different political parties as enemies, you have your marching orders from the king. Love, genuine concern, genuine care, and prayer. Not for smiting, but for flourishing under God. That's our call. Because love overflows expected bounds. That's what God's love did. Because his love was demonstrated in this. While we were ungodly, Christ died for us. That's what God's love's like. God loved us while we were ungodly. That sentence grabs me all the time because I'm like, would I love you if you were unbendly? Like if you were anti-Ben, the opposite of Ben, opposed to Ben, would I still be kind to you? When you were ungodly, anti-godly, opposed to God, he loved you. And that kindness led us to repentance. And that's what we're supposed to be like. And in the end, and here's the last one, is that love, love extends beyond faith and hope. Love precedes faith and hope. It produces faith and hope. It surpasses faith and hope. And it extends beyond faith and hope. So now we've landed back in the passage where we started, 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians, let me just say this. We don't have time to go into all the issues they were dealing with then. But suffice it to say, if you read the book of Corinthians, there were legitimate issues they were disagreeing on, okay? They had disagreements about legitimate issues that should be discussed, and Paul discusses them. But his main issue with them was the nature of their disagreement had become unloving, hostile, and arrogant. And so he's concerned about the tone. Now, I know this is hard to imagine, Christians that disagree on significant issues and so their tone becomes harsh and arrogant and unloving? Ben, I don't understand. Just take it by faith, centuries ago, that happened among the people of Jesus. But it's happening today, right? It happens all the time. And we'll tear the church apart over some issues, legitimate issues. But the way we talk about them is problematic. And so Paul gets into this text, and we didn't, won't get into it all. He's talking about how God is creating a unity of diversity. God made people different on purpose, and he made us different. And you can't say, well, I'm not a part of this because I'm different. And you can't say you're not a part of that because you're different. He said, no, God made you different in different ways so you can serve each other. But then in the particular context we're in, he was talking about people had different giftings, different abilities, different knowledge, access to different information. And he said, rather than using that to serve and help others, they were using it to lord other others and be arrogant. And so he's calling them on that. You're not supposed to use your gifts, abilities, and information to make yourself superior to others. You're supposed to use your gifts, abilities, and information to serve and build up others. So if you're standing on heads, you miss the point. You're meant to lift up on shoulders. You're meant to help other people. You're meant to 
to love. Genuine care, concern, and delight in the other. And so he starts to talk to him about it. And we won't get into all the issues he says about them, but he's talking about how they're all gifted in different ways and, and these gifts are used to build us up. But then he gets to, let me show you a more excellent way. They were trying to find ways to be special and cool in their little teams to oppose the other little teams within the church. He says, let me show you something different. And then he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. He says, you can be the most eloquent person on the planet. You can have supernatural, angelic communication. But if you don't genuinely care for the other in your heart, the best you are is an annoyance. An annoyance. He says, if you have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. He says, you may possess the full range and capacities of every miraculous gift available through God. But if you don't care about that person across the table or across the aisle, he says, you're nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. He said, these are good things. Radical self-sacrifice for the other. He says, but you can sacrifice for others in a way that's really just promoting you. How many of you know that's true? I can write a book about or tweet about how I'm giving to others. And really it's about elevating me. Behold my generosity. And he says, if that's in your heart, that's no gain for you. And then he starts talking about what love is like. He says, love is patient and love is kind. And that's kind of the header on this. And they're the twin sides because one's passive and one's active. He says, love is patient. That's the word macrothemia. It can handle a lot of heat for a long time. It means when you're difficult to care about, love will stay in that heat to work out the friction with you. If we're disagreeing on something, love doesn't bail, it doesn't jet, it doesn't quit the church when it gets hard, it stays to work things out. To the best of your ability, you live at peace with all men. It, it, it stays even when it's hard. And it doesn't just stay, it says love is kind. That's the active part. It means I don't just put up with your garbage, I find active ways to care for your needs. Tony Evans talked about this recently. How are we going to find unity among disparate parties within the church and unity across ethnic lines in the church? It's, it's not just by worshiping in the same room or praying together. It's, it's by building together. It's by shoulder to shoulder doing good together that we will strengthen the bonds of our unity. And here you see, we'll not just be patient with each other passively. We will be kind to one another actively. That I will see your needs and seek to meet them. Because that's what love does. It extends to the beloved. Love does not envy or boast. That's another one. Twin sides. Love doesn't envy. What does that mean? It means I don't resent you for having what I want. You have something I want and I'm mad at you. And love doesn't boast. What's that? It's I have something I know you want, so I'm feeling proud about it because I'm better than you. You see that? Love doesn't feel envy. You have what I want and I hate you. And it doesn't boast. I have what you want and look at you, right? Love isn't like that. So if your political party won or lost, however this all shakes down, if you want to envy or boast, you're missing the bigger story. 
of love. We don't treat each other like this in the church because we're not arrogant. That's the next word. Proud or puffed up. And Paul talks about this so much to Corinthians because he says arrogance, a feeling of superiority, that's cancer in the body. It, it destroys the integrating fabric of a church to be arrogant. Love comes in to serve, not to lord over. He says you watch out for that arrogance. It's not rude. It doesn't out of its feeling of superiority suddenly start to speak unkindly to someone made in the image of God. I remember we had a young lady that was an intern for me when I started in ministry and she had come from a family of means, never really had to work, but she had decided to do a mission trip uh, in her 20s and part of this way this mission trip worked was you got a job in a city and as a function of working in the city, we're just a minister and a light for the gospel. It's just kind of trying to prepare college students for life as a missionary wherever God calls you. And so she worked at a McDonald's. And she said the craziest thing happened. I'm like, I want to be a light for Jesus here at McDonald's. And they put her in the drive-thru. And she would open the door and be like, here's your order. Thank you. And everyone was like, <sighs> and she said, one car after another, no one made eye contact with me. They wouldn't respond to me when I would say, are you having a good day? Have a good day. They wouldn't talk back. Like I was not worthy to be spoken to or even looked at. And she said, I had just never experienced being dismissed. And when it's one, two, three, four, 10, 20, 30 times, she said, it started to make me angry. Like, look at me. <laughs> and then it just started to make her feel really depressed. Y'all care? This diminishing of the image of God and the other, because I just want my sandwich. The believer is meant to be more than that. That person handing you your McNuggets is made in the very image of God, whether they know him or not. And so we are not rude to people, even though we may disagree. And love doesn't mean we don't pretend that we don't. But we can be honest and be respectful. We can be civil even as we disagree. It doesn't insist on its own way. That means self-seeking. I want me and I don't care about you. It's not irritable, not easily angered. Take this verse as a filter on social media this week. Love is not irritable or resentful. Right? Irritable means easily upset. If you find yourself getting easily upset, that's not love inside of you. It's probably anxiety. You probably need to put the phone down, take a walk, Focus on your breathing, right? Love doesn't get irritable. It doesn't hold a record of wrongs, hold it against you. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It wants truth because love bears all things. That means puts up or endure it. There's nothing love can't face. Love believes all things, there's faith. Hopes all things, there's hope. Endures all things, do you see that? It bears with, hopes, endures, and hopes and believes and endures. He kind of wraps it in. Love endures, it remains, and it stays. Faith and hope are strong because love never gives up. It has an enduring quality to it. Right? Love never ends. And then he starts talking about prophecies. They're going to pass away. Tongues, they'll cease. Knowledge will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. He says, hey, some of the things you're looking at to give you significance, for them it was their spiritual gifts, my little party, your faction wins. He says, the things you're looking to put your identity in, though they're good things, gifts from God, they will pass away. Teaching will pass away. If I make my identity this that I preach, 
That's a bad place to put it. Why? Because there will become a day where teaching passes away. I won't need to teach you about God because you'll see him face to face. My job up here is like a pastor at a wedding. Whenever that couple leaves and everyone cries, at the reception, if you ever pastor a reception, they walk out, all the bridesmaids and groomsmen walk out. And what do you do as a pastor? You just stand there, figure out where to put your hands, not your pockets, maybe right here. And then afterwards, what do you do? Your one job, the bride and groom have asked for the pleasure of your company at the reception hall, which is right over there. Please don't delay because they're going to be taking pictures here and they'll meet you over there. Thank you for coming. Now, you make your way to the reception hall. When you get to the reception hall, I don't keep saying that. At the reception hall, they will meet you there. I don't keep giving you instructions. You're already there. I let go of the mic because you made it. And here preaching the word of God, these, these imperfect means we have of praying that you can't see him and reading though you can't talk to him directly. Some of these different means, they're me telling you the reception's coming, you're gonna meet the groom. But when he shows up, I'm releasing the mic because you know him. We, we do this in part. He's, he says, we're like kids. It's not wrong for children to be childish. We're doing this the best way we can. We're like a middle school play of Hamilton. It's not perfect, but it's the best we got. But when the real show starts, we can take a seat. So we gather here to worship and pray and sing and read. And it's childish and fumbling and imperfect, but it's the best we got. But then a day comes where we'll see him face to face. And when that day comes... Whatever you use to make yourself feel special, your singing voice, it won't be better than ours. Your oratory won't mean anything. Your bank account counts for nothing. Your giftings don't matter anymore. They served a purpose, now they're gone. Your faith will go away because faith becomes sight. Your hope goes away because who hopes for what he has? But until we have it, we pay patiently. So faith has a purpose. I'm trusting God, but then I can put it down when I see him. Hope has a purpose. I'm longing for God, but hope disappears when I see him. But love goes racing through the finish line and on into forever. So we do it imperfectly now, but we do it because it existed in eternity past. It made us. It spills the banks of us. And it races on past us into forever. And so don't forsake the main story for littler and sillier ones. We're made to love people. Don't trade the eternal for the temporary. Don't trade a gospel witness for political gains. And I'm talking to both sides of the aisle and I'm talking to you as individuals. Don't let arrogance or envy rob your ability to pursue loving people, even across the banks of disagreement. It's wrong when political unity is a prerequisite for gospel unity. You got it backwards. The gospel's deeper. It's rooted deeper. At some point, all this will go away, but you won't and I won't, so we love. If I can do this before we close, I wanna show you a map and you're like, uh-oh, Ben, don't do it, don't get political. Don't get John King on us. If you notice here, beep, bop, bop. No, I'm not going to do it. But you've seen these maps. Voting, red Republican, blue 
Democrat, put a little square over our little section of the world. And, and you know, there's been, maybe you've seen this one, there's been talk of like, this doesn't really accurately present you our society because there's a lot of landmass here with a lot of people. And, and so they're trying to figure out better maps to show how the country votes. And so they came up with this second one that um, made little circles based on population density. So bigger circles, higher density of voters, smaller circles, less density of voters. And you see here, you go, oh, okay, uh, here's our little square. Looks like you got a lot of big blue dots, maybe in the city, and a lot of little red dots, you know, like out on the farm or something like that, you know? And you go, oh, look, our city is uniform politically in some ways, right? But then the guys who made this map said, you know, this still isn't actually accurate because that's just who won that county. These are counties. This doesn't show popular vote of what individuals were doing. And so they made another one where they said, let's try to show how individuals in each county were voting. And you look in our square and you look in all these squares and, or circles and you go, man, every single circle's split in half. And some of them are a little more blue and some are a little more red, but they're all a mix of both. I mean, the whole thing looks like a Pepsi commercial. And this has been sticking with me today because you go, I don't know which county you live in in here. But we as a society can get to a place where the only people we rub shoulders with are the people who believe everything we do politically. But your neighbor might very well have voted differently than you. And we live closer to each other than we think. And so whichever color you are, we got to figure out a way to get along or else we'll tear each other apart. And Jesus is telling a better story than the divides. So a few days ago, we gathered our team leaders of our church that run our door holder teams uh, to sit outside in front of a church where we had done one of our first meetings. It was, a, it was a vision night of the possibility of Passion City Church DC. A vision night. What if God built this church? And about 400 people came into this church that had become this art venue. And it was amazing. And I did some research on the church. Now it's this art venue, Colony House, formerly the Blind Wino. But we were out there in front of this church and the church was called when it was commissioned Friendship Baptist Church. That building was commissioned in 1902. And as I stood there with our leaders, all socially distanced in masks, we were in front of this building and it struck me, this building, people were worshiping in there, in the church, worshiping Jesus in 1902. And they were worshiping him in 1918 when the Spanish flu hit. And in Washington, D.C., they were wearing masks, still worshiping. And they worshiped through World War I and World War II, the Korean War, Vietnam, the Cold War, Watergate, and all different dramas and challenges and difficulties and struggles and fights and disagreements. And the church made it through all of them. And that building will someday fade. It will someday fall. But the church Jesus Christ is building never fades and does not fall. And she survived a lot of conflicts. The church has made it through many struggles. 
and we've got real problems. We've got real issues. And I'll be honest, when we gathered together as team leaders, I, I didn't ask them who all they voted for, but I would guess there was a divide in, 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 in some of their voting and, and what issues they feel the most passionate about. And yet we began to worship there together. And I watched the worship of God not make the issues less important, but it made the foundation more central. We love each other because God loved us and his love made us. And when we're knit together as an us, now there's an opportunity for the world to see a church that is divided a bit can still love each other because of the strength of the gospel. And we get to show the world what unity looks like, what we can disagree about, but seek and pursue and stay in conversation to gain understanding, to get closer together. Let's find a way together that we can care about all kinds of people. Let's find a way together to hear each other's hurts and weep over them, but then walk out of them together. Let's find a way to take historic breaks in society and mend them together with the healing power of the love of Jesus Christ. Let's show the world the story that started in eternity past and will race into eternity future, the one that is more foundational than any other story, the message of the overwhelming love of Jesus Christ. That's our goal. Love is the greatest because it runs into forever. And by God's grace, may we do that together. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thanks for listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast.